Welcome to the Political Pharmacist Podcast, the first podcast to focus on the political side of pharmacy. Here's your host, Eric Geyer. Welcome, Political Pharmacist Podcast listeners. I'm your host, Eric Geyer, and with me today, I have Representative Randy Kleitz. She is the Ohio House Representative for District 75, which is mostly around the Portage County area, Ravenna, Ohio, for those who are close in the Northern Ohio area and know the cities. Uh, before coming into office, she was also a patient advocate, and she's a graduate from Hiram College. So, Representative Kleitz, thanks for coming on my podcast today. Oh, thank you, Eric, for the invitation. Um, I'm super excited about this opportunity. Great, thanks. Uh, so, part of the reason I wanted you on here was you've been a huge advocate for pharmacist role in healthcare and kind of pushing the state of Ohio forward with your role, uh, whether it be serving on the uh, health committee in the House of here for Ohio, and also kind of with some of your past experiences you've had. Can you elaborate on kind of some of your past experiences a little bit as a patient advocate and what eventually ran, uh, eventually led you to run for office? So I, um, I have a child who is now no longer, I can't say a child, he just turned 18 this year, <laughs> but um, he was born in 2002 um, and diagnosed relatively quickly with a genetic bleeding disorder called hemophilia. And um, then about 16 months later, he was also diagnosed with leukemia. And so going from a new mom who had been um really excited about being a mom. I've been with my husband since I was 15. We got married at 19. I was a nanny for two other families. I love children. Um, so I, you know, just really wanted to be a mom. I went to school for accounting, uh, but didn't really finish my degree. So I went and uh, did Bo Hecker's Business College back, uh, shout out to <laughs> that community college if uh, people are from Portage County. And then I got a job um, just doing uh, industry or sorry, inventory um, and accounting in a, a manufacturing company in Ravenna. And then um, all of that just kind of waiting to become a mom. And so when Colton was born and he had medical issues, um, I really struggled personally. We had no family history of any chronic illness. I didn't really interact with healthcare on a regular basis at all. Um, the only experience I had had was in 1999. My dad was diagnosed with cancer, lung cancer that had spread to his brain. And so we had five and a half months of really intense medical issues. Um, but it was so intense and so quick. I really didn't know much about, you know, what was happening. But when my son was born, uh, that was a totally different case. I was told when he was first diagnosed with hemophilia that the medication is really expensive, that in the 80s, a lot of the patients that had hemophilia contracted HIV and hepatitis from bad blood products. Um, and so that first year of his life, all I did was really research um, how how manufacturers manufactured the, the clotting agent, the clotting factor that my son would be taking, um, how it was paid for, who paid for it, what the drug supply chain was, because in my background in accounting, I did a lot of uh, the manufacturing raw material into end user um, product. Uh, so I, you know, I saw the I ordered the raw material. I helped the machinist machine um, with the, the plans that they had. Um, and then I saw the finished product out the door. Um, and so I was terrified of healthcare. Um, so I trusted the, the team that was taking care of Colton's needs um, at Akron Children's Hospital. So I would 
you know, just leave his care into their hands. But then I wanted to know how our insurance was going to pay for the care that he was receiving. Um, and so I got really involved in how insurance worked. Um, I would get a medical bill and I would call my insurance company and ask them a hundred questions about the bill that I received. And then if I didn't feel like the questions were answered appropriately, the next time I would lay Colton down for a nap, I'd call the insurance company again and ask (laughs) them a bunch of questions again about what the, what the billing codes were and what, why it was, um, you know, billed the way that it was. Um, so I really took that as like my way of protecting my son was I, you know, healthcare was really overwhelming to me when the doctors were making decisions on which drugs to give him during his chemotherapy treatment. Um, those were the things that I just, I had to leave in their hands to know that they were just going to do the best that they could. But I was really worried about, um, my husband's electrician for a small business, small family business. And I was worried about what our healthcare costs would do to my husband's employer and, um, how we would continue to cover, higher premiums every year because we were using so many healthcare dollars. Um, our out-of-pocket costs, um, you know, we we really had, because we had been um, kind of waiting to have a child, we really did try and, you know, save as much as we could because I really wanted to have the experience that I had with the families that I had, you know, babysat and nannied for all those years waiting to have our own child. So I wanted to stay at home. So we had built a rental property. Um, and I thought that that would be enough to, you know, have a child or two or three, um, and stay home with those children. And then the medical bills just kept piling up and piling up. And so it was just really frustrating to me. And so I just, I learned that, um, you know, that, that system, the insurance system. Um, and so that's what kind of drove me to be an advocate, a patient advocate. And then, um, I actually went back to school as an adult learner to Hiram college and, uh, I graduated from Hiram college and I'm like, okay, now what can I do? I'm, you know, I'm better educated. I have had all these life experiences, um, that I think will lend itself well to the healthcare reform conversations that continue to happen because I think, you know, the provider network is taken care of by the hospital systems and, you know, their staff and um, government affairs. And surely the drug companies have their, their yeah. say in what's going on because they have their lobbyists. Um, uh, and I know that there are patient groups out there that are working on things. I had been a patient advocate through an association um, and a coalition for 10 years. So I knew that there were patient advocates out there, but it's much harder to be a patient advocate with the same voice as those that are being paid to, to have a voice for their, you know, their association, their um, drug companies, their provider networks. Um, and so then that's when I decided why not run for office and just try and be a, a true patient advocate um, serving in the legislature. So that was a very long answer to your question. But no, it's great. I think um, that's kind of my background and why I decided to, to run for office. Yeah, and I think it's a, a very telling story that I've had um, other people on the podcast, Loretta Bosing, who has a huge change.org petition with like 170,000 signatures on it that has some similar experiences only with like the drug supply chain and more the PBM issues than what your son seemed to have. But at the same point, I think it's a, I think it speaks volumes that you took an accounting mindset to healthcare and really dug deep in that. And from all of the kind of things I've seen you lead on the health uh, 
the health committee with the Ohio House, you've kind of taken that same mindset of digging in and just kind of asking why and not really accepting that, well, that's just how it is. And I think that's something as a pharmacist I appreciate because we see so many times in pharmacy, it's not so you get about that fourth or fifth why that all of a sudden the answers get kind of, I don't want to say devious, but murky, if you will, uh, whether it become drug pricing, whether it become, you know, with pharmacists just recently getting provider status in Ohio, some of those things you're like, well, why, why, you know, why is this taking so long for us to fix these things? And it's just because there's no simple answer. And that accounting mindset of digging through it and finding the details at a very granular, granular level is huge because so much of it is just buried in the basic accounting of it, if you will. Is that kind of what you've seen in your role as a state rep? Oh my gosh, Eric, you said you hit it straight on the uh, the head of the nail there because I think that that's exactly what I see. And I see things so, um, and I know this, uh, and it's one of the things that I think is um, really good about our health committee right now. There are so many different voices that are represented. It's not just, um, you know, typically back in the day when I first got involved, all the state lawmakers seemed to have um, an attorney background, right? They were all attorneys. Um, And now that's not the case. Like we have people or their legacy, you know, their, their legacy uh, public servants, which are fantastic. Like that's a, you know, that's a great service for, um, for the legislature, but there's this new, um, group of us that are coming because we have different backgrounds and on the health health committee right now, um, I sit next to, um, representative Russo who comes with, uh, a much broader, bigger perspective from like, um, Medicaid. Um, she has a epidemiology background and then I sit next to Dr. Beth Liston, uh, representative Liston. So she comes from a very clear provider background and then I'm there as the patient, like, Hey, hold (laughs) up. Like you guys, like you guys are always talking so big and so, um, like, just trying to figure out the the big picture all the time but I'm feeling it very clearly whenever I see my son's medical bills when I try to access the drugs that his his um physician is ordering and in the back of my mind I'm like I know this is a drug that he feels is best for Colton but until I walk to that pharmacy counter and I talk to his pharmacist to find out what that drug is going to cost us that's that's when it starts to get real for me as a patient um, caregiver. Um, and I think that that, that communication is lost on, in these conversations that are happening because, you know, when we talk about certain, um, you know, all the certain uh, aspects of a bill, until you watch it go all the way through the full cycle, you're not going to understand how that bill is really going to be um administered and how it's really going to impact patients. And I think I bring that perspective because we've been through so many personal situations where we have seen it from, you know, especially since my role um, as a coalition advocacy leader uh, for 10 years, like I was in the room when we were, you know, talking about different legislative actions. Um, For those of you that have been around Ohio advocacy um, for patients for a while, I mean, I was in the room when we were talking about prior authorizations. Um, I was in the room when we were talking about step therapy. Um, so those are things that we've been working on in Ohio for more than six, eight years. Um, so, you know, just having that perspective in the health committee, I think is super important right now and helps um, us with that, you know, 
full picture of what a healthcare bill can really impact. Yeah, and I think that's huge too because I don't want to say your son has uh, special needs, but he has special healthcare needs with some of these medications that are just uber expensive. Correct. And having somebody yeah. in there who really knows that from the patient side is huge because so many times as pharmacists, you know, we're 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 not the most vocal. We're generally more introverted as a profession as overall. We're getting a few more extroverts in there, but there's three million doctors in the U.S. I think there's three or six million nurses. There's only three hundred thousand pharmacists roughly. So when you have you're sitting next to somebody like uh, Dr. Liston, who's also a state rep, she can definitely provide that MD experience. But and then you're providing the patient experience. But so many times we're in the middle of that because you know we can't you you can't get better without the medication in most cases, especially one like your son's. And so we're having to try to communicate to the doctor or the uh, physician what the problem is and the patient what the problem is. And then the way we see it, we're getting this back from the insurance and we're trying to extrapolate, hey, here's an alternative, here's this, here's this issue, this is why I can't get it because the special drug has to go here. You know, there's so many, all of a sudden it hits us and there's like 80,000 ways it can go. And that's why, you know, I really appreciate you obviously reaching out with some of the pharmacy initiatives because you've seen it from the patient side and you understand it, which is, more than even a lot of pharmacists can say because it gets so complicated these days. So I think that's awesome. Um, and since you've been elected, you're, like I said a few times here, you're on the uh, Ohio House Health Committee and have really kind of run with this role. I've seen you put forward just a bunch of initiatives. I, I'm i probably a little sensitive to this because it's the one thing I always watch are some of the House things. But every time I see something going through the Health Committee, it seems to have your name somewhere on it or you've commented on it. And kind of now that this is like more of a pharmacy-based podcast, can you discuss, discuss some of the legislation you've put forth to really kind of either help pharmacies or help patients of pharmacies with their medications? Yeah, Eric, I really appreciate your your diligence in watching what's going on. I think that we need more um, engaged advocates, especially in healthcare. So thank you first for that shout out. Um, but yeah, so I kind of mentioned step therapy was an issue that I was super passionate about before I even decided to run for office. I didn't decide to run for office until um, pretty much the... 2016 end of 2016 time frame so i've been engaged at the statewide level on issues since 2010 um but one of the issues i worked really hard on was step therapy reform and um and towards the end of the step therapy bill being um passed one of the one of the things that i thought protected patients um and uh and really providers the most was non-medical switching. Um, I think that that's one of those things that pharmacists could totally be at the the table on that conversation because you all know that when a patient is on one product or one drug and they've been stable on that drug for 10 years and they get onto a new drug, how many times it takes for you all to help us figure out to not mess with that original drug that they were on. They get put on a new drug. It may take us two or three different times to get a new drug that works good with the first drug we were on to, to be stable on both of them to treat both conditions we got put on a drug for. So once you get that combination of two drugs put together and then you switch your plan, your insurance plan, and I forgot to mention them in the first um, bit, they also have very powerful lobbyists that are watching out for their bottom lines and not paying attention to providers, patients, or pharmacists. Very true. Yeah. So you have have, um, these plans that decide that because of a rebate or because of a discounted rate, they're going to force their patients to 
switch to a different brand drug that they have no idea if they've already failed on that drug. They have no idea if they've had adverse reactions to a drug that has a component of that drug that they've already had an adverse reaction to in, in the past. They don't take any of that into account at all when they make patients switch. And then on top of that, when the patient switches for one drug, that first drug could now not be stable. So now it's going to switch that first drug. And I know I'm preaching to the choir with yeah. your podcast listeners, yes. but like that's something that we as advocates for patients to to receive good quality health care need to be paying attention to and need to be you know, voicing those concerns for, because there's a lot of, and that's a patient that's only on two drugs. Imagine a patient that, I mean, you guys probably know better than I do. What's the average chronic um, patient? How many drugs are they on? Probably more than two. Yeah. Um, I mean, diabetics alone so, are on di- diabetes, high blood pressure, usually hypertension, um, high cholesterol. And that's like the basic. So at least four to five right there, probably. Right. And so if you're on four or five medication and the only person that's asking and the only entity that's asking you to switch a drug is a payer. Yeah. And they're going to mess with that whole cycle of what's good for the patient and the outcomes of that patient and the quality of um, the quality of life for that patient. Like that's mind blowing to me. So, yes, non-medical switching, super passionate about that bill. Super excited that I have a Republican that joined me on that bill with Republican Sarah um, or Representative Sarah Carruthers. Um, she's also super passionate about that. Um, I think that when we talk about accessing um, lower cost prescription drugs, I think the the place that we can do that is in health centers. Um, I know that Neomed has a great relationship with Access Point in Portage County, Um, and I think our federally qualified health centers do a really great job of making sure that discounted rates are passed on to patients, Um, but the payers, again, have decided that they should not always contract with and allow those 340B entities to keep the discount or keep the revenues generated by their discounted rates um, within their uh, revenues that they're able to provide to provide better services, school services around those pa- those patient populations that are underserved um, and high risk patients. Um, and so the 340B bill, I also found a Republican um, co- joint sponsor on that through Representative Susan Manchester. Um, so we've been working really hard to make sure that all payers are um are contracting with a provider that is a 340B provider. So then that way patients have access to discounted drugs. Um, So that's another bill that I've introduced that I'm super passionate about. One bill that I'm super, super, super passionate about (laughs) and did not actually, um, it did not actually become a joint sponsor because it is so personal to me um, is the copay accumulator bill. And I know you guys have been um, involved in working on that bill um, to uh, not allowing patients to access their, the, the copay um, assistance programs through the manufacturers is a huge um, is a huge slap in the face to patient care. I'm just going to say it that way because yeah. I think that as the fight continues between the provider or the payers and drug companies, the patients are the ones that continually get um, the biggest 
burden put on them. And um, for patients that cannot access assistance through um, rebates or third-party people, nonprofit organizations, um, when the payers are using those um, practices against the patients receiving the care that they need, the drug, um, the prescription drugs that they need, I think that that is um, something that most Americans, Ohioans, um, and citizens would be most annoyed and frustrated with. And so I think that um, that bill really needs to be pushed through. And it, um, that bill is uh, joint sponsored right now by Representative Thomas West and Representative Susan Manchester. Um, they are really championing that bill in the House. And I think that's another bill that those of you I know that it is so hard. I feel bad every time I go to the, the counter at the pharmacy and the pharmacist tells me, uh, copay that is more than what I was expecting. I can't even imagine how hard that is on you all to see the look on a patient's face knowing that they need that drug, but they cannot afford that drug and not having any options to help them um, be able to afford that drug is just, it's so hard for me to, uh, to even comprehend how difficult that must be for all of you. Um, so those are the three highlights. I think the the big um, other big issue is definitely Medicaid and just how Medicaid um, is set up to um, to pay for uh, care that patients that are on and receiving Medicaid is and that's that's a whole big issue that's going to come up in the budget talks. Um, I think this this next general assembly. Yeah, and kind of uh, opening up some of what you said there a little bit, uh, kind of starting with the coupon thing or like the the. The benefits, the copay reducers that you can get, we see that a lot. Where we're limited on some of the things we can do, whether it be Medicare, Medicaid, some of those types of programs um, for for the patients, where like they're not eligible if they're on some sort of government program, or but they're only eligible if they're on private insurance. And then if we do see it, we're we're not really supposed to do this, but you know you can kind of tell them, hey, it's over here. Go to this website. And sometimes they're actually blocked from our computers because of like conflict of interest and things like that. I've actually been before in the right. past, pulled it up on my phone and been like, look, here, here's my phone. It's right here. Punch the information in. I can't do it for you. Or, you know, I'll just like real quick, look it up and say, here's the website, you know, copy, paste, send it. Just delete my text afterwards because I don't want you to have my personal phone number and get calls all the time. But, you know, like here's the information. Like I have to try and give it to you to empower you because some of these drugs are just ridiculous. And a lot of times when you're seeing that, there's there's rebates behind the scenes, there's other incentives and things like that for some of the, the drug manufacturers or the insurances that they're getting paid in a different fashion like that. And people don't understand that. They think, oh, it's a coupon, like, hey, you know, Tide wants to sell more Tide. Here's a dollar off coupon for a huge thing of Tide. That's not exactly how all these drug companies are necessarily working. No. It's not at all no. how they're working. Um, so that is no. a huge thing that, I mean, as a pharmacist, I would love to be able to do more with that. Um, where I currently work, we, we're an HIV center of excellence and we do have some of that with some of the HIV patients, but we are limited when it comes to certain programs, like the government backed programs because of anti-kickback and clauses like that. And the other thing you mentioned with the nominal switching, um, I wasn't, I, I saw some of that and I have to dig more into it myself, but it kind of just makes sense because we're seeing back orders left and right right now. Um, lisinopril five milligrams, one of the most common blood pressure meds there is out there. The, only the five milligram dose is on back order. But to get it to the patient, I would have to call the prescriber or the, the physician to get it switched to 10 milligram or 2.5 milligram and then take a half or take two tablets. Well, sometimes we get that switched and then they'd say, oh, the 2.5, we only allow them to take one of those a day. You have to switch them back to the five. 
like but that's on back order like yeah, so oh my gosh and, and so, so that, we're just banging our head in the wall repeatedly and that's another um it's not really a bill that i've introduced but i'm trying to put as much pressure as i can on the federal government because we really can't do it at the statewide level but drug shortages in the in this country it it seems like that should be the absolute easiest thing to fix yeah like there has to be a way that we can make sure we protect the drug supply chain in so much as making sure that the drugs that are used, uh, the one of the first drugs that came out was one of the chemotherapy drugs that my son took 15 years ago to treat his leukemia. It's not very, um, it's not very good at generating a lot of profit. And so there's not a lot of, um, yeah companies that are fighting to make that drug um but it's super it's a staple drug in the treatment of children who have leukemia and that that is mind-blowing to me that we can't figure out a way in this country that the federal government subsidize or figure out a way to stockpile the drugs that we need to treat certain certain disease groups i mean like that and that's to your point like that we're that we're clogging up our system of the drug supply chain by not having enough structure to to address those issues is just mind-blowing to me yeah and and obviously i'm looking at this with a little bit of rose-colored glasses with my profession but even just empowering us to be able to help make some of those decisions not necessarily switching but like you know valsartan which is another common blood pressure med and almost that whole class of medication was put on long-term back order well we know that they're just going to switch them to something like lisinopril because of that back order and we should be able to right. just be like, hey, look, dose equivalent, boom. Because you know how many times we'd call or fax the doctor's office and then they would just be like, just switch them. Like, I can't. I need I need your permission. Can you send me something? Like, this is the stupidest process. Here's what I would, you know, prescribe if I were in your shoes. And they just give you a verbal for it. You write it. You're out the door. And you got it fixed. But in the meantime, I had to wait to get all this approval. <laughs> but, yeah, okay. we're, we're seeing that with, like, you know, just common drugs. And then, obviously, there was another one where even that's been politicized a lot recently with hydroxychloroquine where we had somebody who, right. was, who was on – on it for lupus, was trying to get 180 uh, tablets because they take it twice a day, and it would be the same copay as a three month as a three month or a one month supply. I had to call the insurance and I was fighting for them. I had the diagnosis code and everything, and the insurance wouldn't let me call to override it for that patient who intentionally came late at night so there'd be less people in the pharmacy, so they had lower risk of getting exposed to someone due to COVID because of their health con- health issues. And so I'm sitting here going, literally, I have all the answers in front of me. They've been on this drug. Why do I have to jump through all of these hoops? When I now I have to call the doctor's office and they have to go get all these approvals and things like that, when I had literally have the answers in front of me and I have probably more training on the drugs than they do, although they have it more in the disease state. So you know why are we why are we li- like just doing so much with this to just run circles when it comes back to the insurance company who's paying for it, which is to your point about their lobbyists having a lot of power. <laughs> right. Exactly. Um, the other thing that I kind of want to briefly talk about because Ohio's been kind of the epicenter for healthcare and drug issues recently for, for better or worse, I guess, probably good in your shoes since you're such a patient advocate. But um, the pharmacy benefits with the Ohio Medicaid program has been a, under a lot of scrutiny. I think it was 2016 or 2017, they found that Ohio was overcharged nearly a quarter billion dollars in one year for their drug prices, for what they paid the pharmacies versus what the, uh, the PBMs or the pharmacy benefit manager had kept. Kind of what have you seen with that following up now that we're seeing more pressure again with the Ohio Medicaid not exactly 
being the most forthcoming to some of you state legislators, state legislators with some of the, the data and some of the reports, what are you guys seeing? You said you were just in the JMOC meeting. Is there anything that you're seeing with that that you think pharmacists really need to like speak up on? Eric, it is one of the things that I feel like there needs to be a way that we can track. And I know, so in 2017, one of the issues that we had was when we switched to um, a lot of our patients being moved into Medicaid managed care organizations. And so when we went to five provider um or five plans that patients and Medicaid could choose from, We, I think that really opened us up to a really big risk. And I think we're seeing that now because those five plans then have one, typically one PBM that they work with. Well, right. when those five plans sent out, four of the five chose one PBM. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and then that that gets rid of any competition for patients that have rare diseases, for patients that have um, need access to certain specialty um, centers or drugs. That doesn't leave those patients many options when it doesn't matter who they choose as their provider for health insurance, that they're going to be forced to use one pharmacy benefit manager. And I think that we really learned exactly why we were running into the issues that we were. And the most frustrating thing about yesterday's Joint Medicaid Oversight Committee, JMOC meetings, was the director has not taken the advice of a national consultant that came in to talk to Jay Mock just a few um, months ago, just before, I think it was last fall, or yeah, it was last fall, um, to not carve out pharmacy benefits. Um, but that's exactly what the state is looking to do. So they're going to not have the new procurement for the Medicaid managed care plan um, include pharmacy benefits. They're going to exclude benefits for a pharmacy and have a whole nother contract for those that the Department of Medicaid is going to oversee. And they think that that's going to fix the issue of uh, the transparency. But what we really found is, to your point, in 2017, there was not a real good way to track what the actual costs were that they were transparent about. And so now it seems like a whole lot of unknowns and now a whole new process in um, how to pay for care for almost a third of our patient pop or our citizens in the state of Ohio. Like it's just super frustrating <laughs> yeah. to be this close to be this close to the information, but still feel like there are moments that I feel like as a patient advocate who was working, you know, really closely on stakeholder group meetings and um, as, you know, a person that, you know, could ask, questions you know uh, off record from certain people like now I can't nobody will tell me anything anymore (laughs) and so that's been the most frustrating part of the transition from being a really engaged patient advocate who was not afraid to ask hard questions to now being a state representative who is closer to administrative um, staff, but not able to get as much information now. Um, so that's why back to the point, I am a, I am a advocate of engaged 
citizens, and I am just calling out to you, whoever's listening to this podcast again, watch what what is going on with the Medicaid procurement process. Please read a couple articles. Try and make it a goal to read a couple articles of what's going on in the, the Medicaid space over the next few months. And I always... I didn't really understand because my son had never had to be on Medicaid. We've always been privately insured. Um, and so as a, a newbie patient advocate, I didn't really understand the true huge impacts that Medicaid has to what happens in our markets in the private market space and in the self-pay or um, I guess self-pay is the best way to say it um, in, in that space. Um, but Medicaid really does drive so much of what's going on in the state of Ohio outside of just the clients who um, are Medicaid recipients. Um, So just, just throwing that out there. Yeah. And you know, from the patient side and even from the pharmacist side, it often feels like the battle of Sisyphus where you're just pushing this boulder up, you get to the top and then it rolls back down again. You're like, wait, I thought we had this fixed. Um, Right. And with this, you know, I've always kind of not understood why states don't just, run the PBMs and I'm, I'm as much of a free market guy as anybody else, but why doesn't the state just take their own pharmacy benefits and handle it? Now, some people might look at that as socialized medicine. I look at it as just cutting out the middleman and saving yourself an absolute ton of money. And and in the case of our state, you know, if you save $225 million in one year, you can fix a lot of roads and bridges for that. Just if, you know, other, with other funds. Um, and to your point too, the, the fact that I think it was CVS is the one who's the PBM behind most of our state Medicaid programs. And with COVID, we actually had Molina say, look, these patients can get at any pharmacy. We don't care. We just want to make sure that they can get their medications. And where I work, we were actually, co- we've been, we're not contracted with Molina, but, you know, CVS holds their PBM. Well, we call Molina to try and get an override. They say, okay, here's the number for the PBM. Call them. We call the PBM, and I have to go through at least every time two to three people which takes at least half an hour every time to get a medication covered for somebody. And it's just ridiculous because, you know, the, the PBM is putting these roadblocks in place and hoping that we just don't want the fight and just go, you know what, go across the street to CVS because they'll, t- they'll take it. And so we're seeing these things exactly. that are just being like as corrupt as all get out. And I, I don't know how else to, to say it other than that. It's, it's just pure, like they're not following their lines. The PBMs aren't even following the lines of their own insurance who is paying them, which is how crazy it's gotten in not just our state, but all over the country, especially during COVID. Yeah. And then I'll take you one step further on that. What's their re- reimbursement rate on that? Uh, yeah. Um, let's, not even go th- let's not even go that right. road yet. That's a whole other podcast. <laughs> yeah. And so I think that that's, but that's, you know, when we start looking at, um, you know, that big picture versus smaller picture, I think that's where, you know, where the rub is, right? Because mm-hmm. it sounds, it sounds great to have one state run, PBM. That sounds that sounds like the place to be. However, if you as a provider cannot generate enough reimbur- or revenues off of your reimbursement rates that you're getting for the actual services provided, the only way that you can pay for the services that are being provided is off of a little bit of a bump from receiving the rebates or the discounted rates to generate a little revenues, which right. is what the 340Bs and what the health centers do. If we move to a single source payment, like a PBM that's state-wide run, right, run, there's no revenue generated off the sale of the drugs, and there's no revenue generated off the service providers because the reimbursement rate is so low. Yeah. So, sure, it gets cheaper 
to pay out of Medicaid funds, but where in the state budget are we going to pick up to pay for the whole intent of providing discounted rates through like a PBM or a 340B um, program is that you, it's not bad to generate a little revenue. Sure, there should be some oversight to make sure it's not too much of a revenue source, that it's not too much on the patient population. But if you are looking at two, if you're looking at two great oranges and one is really ripe and ready to eat and the other not so much, then it's so much easier to see that, you know, which one you want to choose. But if you're looking at it in a, in a, a place of, okay, I have this really great orange that's ready to eat right now, and it costs the same as this one that's not so great to eat right now, then which one are you going to choose? Yeah. And I think that the, the orange that I'm afraid we're running ourselves into is not the ripe, ready-to-eat orange. It's the, I don't know if I'd really choose that orange or not, because we're driving <laughs> out we're driving out a reimbursement rate that can continue to pay for good service providers. If we keep lowering the reimbursement so much so that no providers want to provide services to a third of our citizens in the state of Ohio, we're in trouble. Yep, for sure. And especially because it doesn't matter where you live, that means you're now already limited to where you can go to get your your pharmacy services. And in some people, you might not have that specific pharmacy that takes it or in your county even in some of the more rural parts or if you're in an urban area especially with covid you might have to go quite a distance to get there and hopping on a public bus might not be the best idea right now depending on what your um, some of your health conditions are so yeah no it's totally right. makes sense and, what you're back, saying. and back to your point of and what's their hours when are who's who's allowing for you to come in to get services at what certain times and i guess that's more of a provider example than it is for the pharmacy benefits but on the provider spectrum like they're only taking medicaid patients on wednesday mornings well most of our medicaid patients um our medicaid um are working and they're mostly working jobs that don't work eight to five. They work, you know, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, they might be eight to five, but Tuesday and Thursday, they're working the closed shift somewhere and they're hourly paid and they cannot take off Wednesday morning to, to come into a, an appointment because then they'll lose their benefits for that week because they might not get the hours that they need to stay covered. Um, so it's, it's such a system that, we really need to think through every decision that we make. Yeah. Um, with that, I do want to make sure that I get these two questions for you before that I ask everyone who comes on, just because I think you as a legislator have a very different approach to this than most pharmacists I ask. Um, if you could change one thing about pharmacy, not necessarily a law, but one thing about pharmacy, what would it be? Oh, this one is a trick question for me because I am so passionate about the services that you all provide. I I think that the the one thing that I would have to to go to is I wish that there was more communication between the and I don't mean like a quick note back and forth from a physician, but a real a real relationship built between our patients, our providers and our pharmacists. I think that if we could, every time we had a decision that we needed to make um, between our 
our changes in any of our plans on how we're treating a, a chronic illness, especially. I wish that pharmacists were in the room um, somehow. And that maybe that's one of the things that comes out of the move to more telemedicine is that if there's a, a patient that's really struggling, um, maybe it is that. Back to my original example that I gave earlier, if you've been stable on one drug for a very long time, but you need to add in a second drug, maybe having the pharmacist on the phone and in that discussion could say, hey, you know what? You've never tried. You've actually never tried another drug that was for that original um, diagnosis that you had that may work really well with this new drug that your your physician wants you to be on. Um, and I think only pharmacists would, would have that experience. So I wish that there was truly a healthcare team that worked more closely than the, the quick messages back and forth. You know, it's crazy because that's literally what we're taught in pharmacy school. And then when you work uh, community pharmacy like I do or retail, it happens very little except waiting on hold right. to try and get a quick message through. And yeah, oh my God, there's so many there's so many impacts I could make in a given day that I'm limited to or I'm, I, I'm, I'm faxing people, but they don't take faxes or what have you. So yeah, streamline that process would be, God, that would just revolutionize healthcare in so many ways. <laughs> Yeah, but there's so many other things that I would love to see you all doing, but that that is definitely, you know, top of top of my uh ask of the change. All right. Now, this one is going to be a little different too because you're a legislator. If you could change one law about pharmacy, federal or state, that you have more power at state, but you know, federal too, what would it be and why? Uh, you've already touched on it. I think pharmacists should be able to tell a patient when there's discounts available. I think that they should be able to link them to services um, that they know about. I think that that is a no-brainer, and I do not understand at all why we are not addressing that issue um, more. Yeah. I, I, I love that one as a pharmacist that I can make a huge impact with. So, yeah, I completely agree with you on that one. Um Representative Kleitz, thanks again. I know you're up for election this year, so if any listeners want to support her, she's around the Portage County area, basically all of Portage County, um, Ohio District 75. I always use a Ballotopedia if you need to find a place to go you know, look up a candidate, and I'll put that in the show notes here for Representative Kleitz since she's on there as well. Um, thanks for coming on the podcast there, Representative Kleitz. Thank you, Eric. I really appreciate all that you're doing to make sure that your listeners are uh, educated and engaged. Thanks. And as always, listeners, thanks for following the Political Pharmacist Podcast, your prescription for pharmacy and politics.